right. So welcome back to another episode of Vikingology podcast, the art and science of the Viking age. And today is like happy and sad. Um, I'm happy to be able to talk with our guest, Dr. Matthias Nordvik, but I'm also sad that my co-host CJ is not here today. He's feeling a little bit under the weather. So we're going to proceed without him and wish him good health. Uh, and he'll be back uh, in our podcast that we'll be doing in a month or so. Um, and so anyways, uh, welcome Matthias to Vikingology podcast. Thank you so much, Terry. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. No, I, I I hope also that CJ is is doing well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. Well, like sacrifice something to Thor after this in order to make his, <laughs> if that's the right God, I don't know. You'll that sounds that. like a good course of action. Yeah. I think it's Adam of Bremen that says that uh, they, they sacrifice to Thor at the Temple of Uppsala uh, for good health as well. Yeah, so, so there you go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of... Uh, I don't know if it's monotheism or not, but I'm kind of like, I just kind of go to Thor for everything. <laughs> it's a catch all for me. Well, you you, you got to have that, that, that person, right. That, that you go to. So yeah, it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, let me just start by saying too, I mean, so you are a professor at the university of Colorado in Boulder and you specialize in Nordic mythology and paganism. So the pre-Christian period of the Viking age and also Scandinavian folklore, Viking age studies. Um, and you receive your doctoral degree at the University of Aarhus, where I'm headed in about 10 days. So I'm excited to go and see that, that town uh, yeah. since I've never been there before. Um, but that you're also a podcaster. And so maybe a lot of people will have heard you either on the Nordic Mythology podcast that you do with the co-host or your new one that you do alone called The Sacred Flame, which I've found to be very interesting, um, taking it with me on runs and when I'm out at the farm picking blueberries and, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I, I find it really interesting because it gets at some things that I think about a lot. And that is, you know, connecting um, the past with the present. Mm, yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, and I'm so happy to hear that you you listen to it when you pick blueberries, because that's exactly what it's for. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of meditative. Uh, um, and actually, I probably will get to this a little bit later because I wanted to, but I've been rereading um, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, there's some interesting kinds of overlaps a little bit for me, um, you know, with some of these kind of ancient philosophers. Um, but you and I have spoken once before, and we talked about maybe this being about Viking philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. And we do tend to have, you know, themes here in Vikingology that we, we have with our episodes. And so, you know, myth and, and philosophy and, um, kind of the wider cosmology. I mean, I'm really interested uh, in that. And um, I also wanted to just say, so you've got three books, um, which, you know, have the general theme of myth. So you've got, uh, which I really love, Norse Mythology for Kids, mm -hmm. Tales of Gods, Creatures and Quests, great subtitle. Um, and then also, so this one that I want to talk about, so also true for beginners. And then also um, volcanoes in Old Norse mythology, myth and environment in early Iceland. And as you know, I mean, Iceland, I love Iceland, spent a lot of time there. And uh, so to, to get started, I mean, the volcano is erupting again. Um, so right. <laughs> why, why don't you tell me um, 
from from your space there on high, your very spiritual presence with your light in the background there. Um, <laughs> what would a Viking Age Nordic person have thought about the eruption of a volcano? All right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Going straight into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do apologize for the halo behind me, but my <laughs> my office is under construction right now, and you can see it. Some some boxes and stuff as well. So Entirely I don't appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah, um, what would a Viking have thought about volcanoes? Well, my theory is that they would have approached that situation in the eight nine hundreds exactly like uh, what we see other peoples do around the world, and that is by um ultimately inserting it in a meaningful context in their worldview. And if we uh, presume that Old Norse mythology was the, the basis for their understanding of the world, then uh, we may also assume that they would have used Old Norse mythology to make sense of the phenomenon. So what you have in 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 ninth century Iceland is uh, a bunch of Scandinavians and and Gaels coming over, uh, settling and building a society, and they do that on basis of of these these traditional knowledge systems that they brought with them from from their respective places. Now the um uh, the, the what we know is that the one that becomes most dominant is the 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 the, the knowledge system from Scandinavia. And so um, it looks like they would have, at least if you believe my research on that, um, that that they would have um, uh, perceived these phenomena as workings of various kinds of like spiritual spiritual entities. I like to call them that rather than gods and giants and all that stuff because that's more like the cartoon version of it. Yeah. Um, um, they and we can see that there is a, a, a particular poem that has been uh, um, um, uh, preserved in in this short story called Bekbuathaktar, and this is a situation where this guy he's um, he's he's on a journey across the mountains and uh, he runs into a blizzard and then he goes into a cave, and in that cave he sees these two giant eyes staring at him. And it turns out that that is a Berkbui, a, a um, mountain dweller. And then this Berkbui starts uh, reciting this poem that is uh, describing volcanic eruptions. This is really the only medieval source that directly sort of in a tangible way addresses um, volcanic eruptions uh, from Iceland. Um, we have, of course, mentions in the analysis of there was an eruption over here and an eruption over there and that kind of stuff, just like briefly mentioned. Um, and this has led a lot of scholars to assume that the Icelanders were sort of like shrug about uh, volcanoes. It's like we're talking about the most geologically active place on the planet. And yeah. and all of these people living here, they were just like, nah, whatever. Uh, some scholars have suggested that, oh, it's only when Christianity comes around that they start getting, quote unquote, superstitious about it. Um, and my uh, my answer to that is that no, that that's definitely not the case. Uh, Christianity has a different uh, idea about what volcanic activity is. This comes from uh, Pope uh, Gregory the Great, who writes about uh, volcanic eruptions and 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 geologic activity in, uh, in context of Sicily and ties it in with the fire and brimstone version of hell. Yeah. 
And so this is adopted later on in, in medieval Iceland. But before that, it looks like what Icelanders did was that they looked at this stuff and then they were like, well, this is obviously the, the workings of the Jöhnar, um with the the, the Icea involved in, in some contexts. The, the poem uh, itself mentions um, battles between Thor and 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 different Jötnar. Odin is also involved. So, what my um, suggestion is then that uh, is that uh, what happens is that we get these sort of like uh, cluster motifs, uh, ideas um, that are very similar to what we see on pretty much the rest of the planet. Um, when it comes to this, we have giant beings we have birds typically uh sometimes we also have various forms of uh, snakes or or uh, water dwelling large water dwelling animals of various kinds um that are the ones that are sort of um uh, the, the 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 geologic activity is attributed to them and boom where do you get that you get that in Virlusbau, the description of ragnarok um, and you also have, of course, the fire giant Surtur, who comes out of the ground with a flaming sword. And what I try to do in in context of all of this is to locate these the perhaps the origin of these narratives and, and motifs in context of actual historical eruptions. And what we have um, right around nine hundred and thirty is this massive eruption called Elkjau that had hemispheric impact. We know that it disrupted farming in China and, and um, South, uh, Southwestern Asia. Um, and if that is the case, if it did that, this Icelandic eruption did that, then it must have had a lot of impact on Iceland as well. And what is the comparable example? Well, that's Lakakika in um, 1783 to four. Um, where we where we see a massive volcanic eruption that has impact on the European continent in terms of gases that kill a lot of people. Um, it impacts the the way that the sky looks. We have plenty of interesting descriptions of it from from England, for instance, in in the late seven, uh, 1700s. And of course, what it also does is that it impacts life directly in Iceland. We see in some counties. Um, close to the eruption a uh, um I, I think it's around 20 20 to 25 percent uh, of the population die um uh, primarily because of um uh, fluoride um, um, uh, contamination of the um the feed for the animals so the so the, the sheep die um and we have this wonderful description or wonderful i don't know if it's wonderful but it, it's an interesting description of it at least um in the eldrit these uh, narratives that are being written from i think the oldest one is from the beginning of the 1600s these are descriptions of volcanic eruptions in iceland in this period and it looks like those eldrit are primarily being uh, created because this is a way to get the attention of the Danish king far, far away mm -hmm. and essentially send him a list of damages and say, can we have compensation, please? Because a lot of them come with these lists of we lost so and so much and he does send compensation for this stuff. Um, 
and so so we have this description of of the Lacakika and uh, eruption and it's actually quite similar to some of the stuff that we see in earlier uh, literature where um where where the 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 uh, lava flows are uh, compared to rivers the boulders that are coming in the lava flows are compared to um whales you know swimming in 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 the uh, the, the fire rivers and such and so um, when we look at this globally, we see similar uh, ways of talking about volcanic eruptions. So this looks like a very common human way of actually just trying to conceptualize what it means that the earth is all of a sudden on fire and exploding. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, that that's that's what I did there. <laughs> yeah, what uh, um, where or I should say, where is the volcano that you mentioned uh, erupted in nine thirty? Uh, the Elkiao is in the same system as the Lacakika um, um, eruption, uh, and this this is a, uh, um, a system that goes from Myrdalsjökull, so Katla, that's under Myrdalsjökull, is is part of that system, and then it goes all the way uh, sort of northeast towards Vatnajökull, um, and you can have different types of eruptions there. In different ways, like the typical Katla eruption, um, is is actually just you know what the Icelanders traditionally have called Kötlslaip, which only presents itself as glacial uh, water bursts that come out under Myrdalsjökull, and there's an interesting folktale uh, attached to that as well, with a witch who um, <laughs> has these pants that lets her run really fast. And then because of a killing, she ends up um, uh, committing suicide in in, in the, the uh, crevices of the uh, the Myrdalsjökull. And, and then these Kötlusløp are uh, associated with her. And her name is Katla, just like the volcano. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, it's interesting. Um, and some of the listeners may know, I mean, it, in, in Neil Price's book, Children of Ash and Elm, he, you know, talks about this kind of volcanic, um, you know, phenomenon, but in the sixth century, right? Mm -hmm. uh, two of them, uh, not in Iceland, but in other places in the world. Well, one, I think he says is actually unknown, but one is um, where like El Salvador or someplace like that. And um, but, you know, having this kind of worldwide effect, you know, darkening of the sky and all of that kind of stuff, and that potentially there's some, you know, that playing a role in kind of the reset button, right? And, and what ends up sort of setting up what ultimately will become Viking Age society. Um, I yeah, no, this, 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 it does look like the, um, the so-called dust veil event, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. In the yeah. 530s, uh, 35, I think it is, um, uh, seems to have had a uh, strong impact on Scandinavia. And it makes perfect sense um, considering that if, if you have a volcanic eruption somewhere in the world that blankets the globe uh, or at least parts of the globe then in the northern parts um we will have you know summers with very low productivity on the fields we've we saw that in the 19th century too um um what was it, the krakatau or krakatoa mm -hmm. um yeah. yeah um as as one example of this and 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 yeah that has direct real world impact on people Right. So I think if I remember the numbers correctly from from what Neil Price has written in 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 other uh, research articles on this, we see um, is it in north central Sweden, a, a, a 
like something like 70% of farms are, uh, are abandoned in certain locations. Yeah. And so, you know, where did the people go <laughs> is, is, is a really interesting question, right? Yeah. Uh, did they just die off? I don't think so. I think what this contributed to more migrations out of Scandinavia. So, so yeah, it's definitely an important factor yeah. in, in the dy political dynamics of, of Europe in this period. Um, just as it is elsewhere, and we can see that, you know, in in archaeology in in Ecuador, uh, there's an interesting example. Um, this population, right around the year zero, I think it's in the year ninety, um, where there's a, a cataclysmic volcanic eruption that that um, that impacts the valley that they live in, and what we can see from the archaeology of this population um, is that they are um uh, they seem to be what we would classify as a peaceful society they're not farming a lot of crops they, they have one or two types of crops that they're farming they don't engage in a lot of warfare um they they just hang out so to speak and and live their best lives and then they get impacted by this volcanic eruption and what we can see is that uh the survivors they move to the coast where they then live for a couple of hundred years, and then they return to their original homeland, which suggests that they would have kept stories alive about all of this. Mm -hmm. And the type of society that returns is entirely different. It's a relatively steep warrior hierarchy, very aggressive. They have multiple types of crops. They forage, they hunt, and they also prey on their neighbors. So it looks like this population has completely changed their mindset and ideas about what to do uh, for resilience and survival. Right. And I'd actually say that Iceland looks like a similar type of society in this period um, that sort of like comes becomes worse and worse in the early period of, of Icelandic uh, settlement, where, you know, you, you have these very aggressive uh, landlords, essentially, who are competing with each other over resources. And it makes perfect sense because Iceland is also, although, you know, Scandinavians, um, especially northern Scandinavians, would be well familiar with ways of farming in, in Arctic or subarctic conditions. Iceland is still different from mm -hmm. uh, Norway yeah. um, and the rest of Scandinavia. And so uh, it looks like they become more and more aggressive over time, just basically uh, hoarding resources and this you know, turns into a very steep patriarchal uh, warrior society that then, you know, ultimately succ succumbs to itself, so to speak, in the 13th century, where they're, you know, their infighting and, and rivalries um, become a weakness to them. So the Norwegian king can swoop in and be like, now I'm king over the whole thing. So <laughs> I think, I think actually, Sometimes okay. we should uh, we should consider that such geologic event can have really like big impact on the direction a society will take eventually yeah. later on. Yeah, because definitely I think Price, you know, sets that up for the sixth century volcanoes, even though they aren't in Iceland, but it does affect things. And the reset button results in a similar phenomenon, this warrior kind of militarized society. Um, which I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense to me as far as if you're, you know, you go through something cataclysmic like that and you happen to be amongst the survivors, then it's pretty much Mad Max, you know, I mean, and everybody's just trying to 
trying to survive. Um, I mean, in an odd way, I mean, I can't relate to that, you know, warrior part of it, but I mean, here where I am in Portland, you know, I mean, I was a kid when uh, Mount St. Helens erupted and, mm. you know, it's not very far from the Portland area. And, and on top of that, my mom had decided to take me and my sister to like a weekend little getaway in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we were like heading back you know, south through the state of Washington. <laughs> and then it's like the mushroom cloud <laughs> is there. We're like, what the heck is going on here? Because, you know, that hadn't happened for like anybody's lifetime, you know, and having to get completely rerouted and whatever in order to finally get home. But then what happened afterwards, just as far as, you know, I mean, the dust veil is real. Let me tell you that, mm -hmm. much, you know, and the fact that you get home and there's like whatever silica or, you know, volcano, whatever detritus, like all over everything. Yeah. And, you know, people didn't understand. I mean, people were like wearing, you know, sort of rudimentary masks or this or that, but nobody really understood, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously scientifically we knew what was going on, but nobody had ever had to deal with it before. And so it was uh, an interesting time. Yeah, and see, this is exactly uh, why those stories exist, mm -hmm. right? Those those stories exist in cultural memory in populations that have experienced volcanic eruptions before, exactly so that we know what to do. Yeah. And so, what you can see in some of the uh, um, so myths that I would call a volcanic narration, or at, at least they have an affinity to vol volcanic narration, uh, narration, because I don't think that they're just about that. They're they're about a lot of different things. That's what cultural narratives are always about, right? Yeah. Um, but what you can see in some of the Icelandic ones is that they follow step by step what actually happens in volcanic eruptions. The the story about the meat of poetry. Is actually, if if uh, if you ask me, built on a framework that relates to volcanism, um, with like um, earth tremors before an actual eruption. All of this stuff you can, if you, if you know what happens in a volcanic eruption and you read that story, you'll be like, oh wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is what they're talking about. Yeah, and this is this is this is what you see. You know, the Pacific Ring of Fire. If you look at the, the populations living from um, Aotearoa all the way up to Alaska and all the way down, uh, you will see that these populations have stories like these yeah. that will, you know, suggest that to you. I just saw on CNN the other day that um, an oarfish had been spotted, uh, some some uh, some divers uh, uh, encountered a, a large oarfish um, off the coast of Japan. And and um, the interesting thing about that was that um, it, it just mentioned briefly that in Japanese um, uh, traditional uh, storytelling, there there are um, the oarfish are associated with earthquakes. They say that they will appear before earthquakes. I don't know um, if that is part of the behavior of oarfish, mm -hmm. um, but it totally makes sense to me that if you know in Japan you've seen um or fish um in context of earthquakes that that will be uh, compounded in such narratives yeah interesting so um okay so then i'm going to back up a little bit just in the whole sense of you know kind of what we're getting at here with you know these belief systems and ways of being in the world and 
um, you know, I mean, most people, you know, especially people who know you or have listened to your podcast or whatever, I mean, there's, you know, especially for our podcast too, like, you know, the English speaking audience, you know, mostly like UK, United States, what have you, um, that will probably have some rudimentary understanding of if I say the word Norse mythology, like what that means, right? You know, mm -hmm. at, least, at least if it's nothing more than from the Marvel universe or something, right? I mean, they'll know we're talking about like some pre-Christian, you know, pagan, um, as it's, you know, they, they call it, um, a polytheistic system um, mm -hmm. of you know various deities and 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 spirits and things like that and yeah, quite frankly I have to say you know for my class that I teach you know on kind of the intro to Viking history I mean this is what a lot of students come to me it's it's it seems to be either a they've got Scandinavian heritage or something you know Vikingish that they think and they kind of want to see what that's about or b they know about Norse mythology and they love it and they they want to know more. Um, but but kind of beyond getting into sort of what that is, you know, talking about who's Odin, who's Thor, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, people can Google that, I guess. Um, but I'd like to to speak about it more in kind of the um, the the general mindset of what it meant to be, you know, a Nordic person in the world um, at that time. And I mean, we're kind of getting at a bit about it, you know, with sort of how would you react to a, a volcanic eruption or how would they react to a volcanic eruption? But I mean, how, as far as your research has told you, how, how did Nordic peoples um, understand their place in the cosmos? Um, mm -hmm. you know, it, which of course is you know different from the Christian understanding and what that's going to sort of implant and impose and, and what have you. But, um, you know, give us a sense of that. Yeah, so um, to me, it looks like, uh, first and foremost, I would say that uh, understanding your world in the cosmos has everything to do with the environment around you. And this is something that we can see in very recent folk tales from Scandinavia too. There are so many folk tales from the Danish area that are about uh, flooding um, and and lakes and and such things, and they involve trolls and all kinds of what we would call mythological beings today. Um, when you go to Norway, it's rock slides and uh, other sort of you know mountainous activity, and when you go to Sweden, there's a lot of forest dwelling creatures of various kinds right so that already there tells you that you know uh, based on the scandinavian environment people uh, have come up with ways of 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 understanding what that environment is and what it does and uh bringing in uh, an element of um um presumed intention <laughs> behind it right so when there's a rock slide the intention is that there was you know, there's a troll over there that had the intention to kill me, right? That, that's what that yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so that means, of course, that uh, these peoples, um, and this goes for, again, from uh, all populations on the planet um, uh, in some distant past or not so distant past, they they have seen themselves and placed in the cosmos around uh, with, with all of these other entities around them acting and behaving from their own logic right and this is I, th I think this is really important because when we talk about mythologies and religion we 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 think about it in terms of like belief in something and i would say that this is not actually the same thing as belief this is a, this is a sense of meaning making um 
And that meaning making then may turn into uh, attempts to communicate with these entities. Um, and um, what that can then uh, express itself as is ritual. And so I, I'm sure there's a bunch of uh, scholars of religion that are like, you know, having spasms right now as I'm saying this, because what I'm then into their ears uh, suggesting is that religion comes from nature, <laughs> right? And, and human nature relationships. And that is only partially true, of course, because then you have other religions like uh, Christianity that is, um, or at least becomes a very urban religion. Um, it it has it has urban religious elements to begin with, but uh, then it later on becomes very urbanized, right? But you also see expressions of Christianity that are very similar to uh, what I uh, presume uh, pre-Christian religion in Scandinavia was like. Um, again, Scandinavia is a great example, right? These folk tales they exist alongside with Christianity, uh, so that uh, and and and. What it looks like is that in medieval uh, Scandinavia, Christianity is a very sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, nature-centered uh, type of religion to to the general public. Um, so, um, so what uh, what I would say uh, is happening in in that uh, pre-Christian period is is sort of a, a interplay between this. Uh, um, uh, what we would call biosacral type of religion, a religion that that um, that understands the world as as imbued with different kinds of spirits, uh, essentially, that we can communicate with, and we need to communicate with them because they're the ones that are in control over the growth of whatever we put in our fields and need to harvest to eat. Uh, they're the ones that are in control over the animals that are present around us that we can hunt. The fish in the water and so on. So, so that's that's what we need to focus on. And then on the other side, then you have uh, societal development that then introduces new ideas around all of this, and also comes up with um, um, ritualistic practices for uh, that are specifically for societal um, uh, human communal interaction in different ways. And this is where, for instance, we get all the nonsense about Valhut and Odin as some kind of like warrior king and and all that stuff. That's because, you know, in the in the 500s, um, possibly influenced by the upheavals of that Dust Veil event, by the way, yeah. um, uh, we, we get little landed rulers, landed kings of some kind. They What we see is, is also that you know, these central sites become more and more popular. These locations where you have a hall with a some kind of temple-like structure. Um, Scandinavian archaeologists like to call it cult houses to avoid the term temple. I don't think, yeah, they, they, yeah, that's that's sort of like the cult house is sort of the Scandinavian attempt to translate hof. And I think we're just playing word games with all of that. They're temples. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have temple structures. They're just not temples in the sense of like those you know, cool Roman temples and all that stuff, right? Um, and and so it's like you have this little ruler that 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 creates that little space that also has economy attached to it. There's usually seasonal markets, um, industry in terms of smithies and other 
you know, production of textiles and so on, right in, in one single location. And this is where that ideology that attaches uh, warrior retinue to a hall, to a ruler, um, to Odin uh, really comes from. This is this is when that is created. Mm-hmm. And that then uh, becomes part of the dynamics of the Viking Age, right? This is, we, we sort of get more and more a direction towards uh, single rulers who, um, you know, hold power over a lot of land. This is, of course, also helped by Frankish feudalism that starts permeating the North in uh, in this period as well. Um, there's the establishment of hunting parks, for instance, in uh, in this the seventh century, I think it is in 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 southern Scandinavia, which suggests that the elite is monopolizing hunting just like they're doing in the Frankish uh, Empire. Um, And what is monopolizing hunting? Well, it is basically to tell everybody else that they can't hunt. What what does that mean? Well, it's an enclosure of resources that you're you're essentially taking these resources away from the general public and saying, this is your privilege to do that. And that, of course, then also means that the general public will then have to rely on whatever they can grow in their fields and barter and buy, right? which will funnel more resources back to you as the little, you know, ruler of that central site. Um, So, so you have like these two different uh, developments, right? This, this communication with the natural world around us and then the communication um, between social institutions, essentially. And that's what generates the material that we then have written down in Snorri Sturluson's Edda and Eddic poetry and other sources from, you know, the high medieval period in the 13th century, primarily. Um, and what that is, I would say, uh, is uh, one, uh, primarily whatever the elite could uh, could gather of material that was still um, circulating, right? Skaldic poetry about kings and heroes, a few about gods, uh, edic poetry that has been used for entertainment, whatever folk tales and stories that Snedder Stutters unheard um, or read um, in in uh, in in the learning center at Otti, um, where he grew up, right? Mm-hmm. So, 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 what we really have is the watered down version of everything. We don't have, we don't have that awesome access that we could have had to to the minds of everyday people in in the eight hundreds. We we have, um, we we have um, sort of the faint ghost of that, unfortunately. Yeah, this is the thing that that Price does refer to as the Viking mind. You know that he tries to get at, and I know one of the. Um, one of the things that I've I've found interesting that um, I mean, and it's so simple, but you know the, the way he phrases it in one of his I can't even remember which one, but I mean, like you were saying earlier, I mean, this isn't a belief system. This is a way of knowing. It's like these people didn't believe these things; they knew them, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, to me, it's just so interesting, and I think you and I have talked about this before. This way of actually being in the world and living in the world in ways that I think in the the post industrial you know, like we're we're like sort of trying in fits and starts in various ways to kind of get back to that. But I think it's very difficult because we don't have that same sense of feeling. And not only, you know, sort of the post-industrial world, but also of course the when you know Christianity does affect things as far as this imposition of an idea that 
suggests somehow human beings are like above or separate, you know, because then that means they can exert dominance and control and sort of bend nature to its will, which, you know, how, how are we doing on that? <laughs> no, <Right. yeah. laughs> Good luck, very, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but it's so, but it is interesting to me, uh, as I mentioned before about like looking again at um, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius and he actually, I, I, I marked this out. I totally was thinking about you because He's, there's this one passage where he says, you must always keep this in mind. What is the nature of the whole, whole with a capital W, right? Uh, what is my nature and how is my nature related to that greater nature with a capital N? Uh, also that nobody can hinder you from constantly doing any, doing and saying what is in keeping with nature, capital N, of which you are a part. Uh, and when you look at the uh, the glossary in this particular um, you know compilation or translation, um, they say, well, what he means by nature is like what you just said. It's like that which makes things grow and, and mm -hmm. essentially sustains life. You know, and it's kind of like we are part of this, um, and yet we're sort of having to relearn that, um, mm -hmm. which is you know sort of I guess can be seen as positive in that we are taking steps, at least in some ways to do that. But in other ways, it's kind of sad, isn't it? That we forgot this very sort of fundamental thing that, you know, that this animist part about, at least for me, in, in the way I see it, you know, that, I mean, everything is alive and deserves that sort of respect as a, as a living being, whether it's a rock or a, a river or, you know, a bird or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so so Stoic philosophy, I would say, in many ways, is is the uh, Greco-Roman attempt to uh, keep a type of animism alive in 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 their societies, and and it seems like they were actually for a long time quite um, successful in doing that. I mean, Marcus Aurelius, the uh, philosopher emperor, is an example of that, right? The person that we in in his time in Roman society we may assume was probably most detached from natural processes right he's yeah, the one right. who's got yeah. most resources coming to him and doesn't right. have to do anything for it hence the <laughs> meditations though he's struggling with that you can clearly yeah, yeah. absolutely right but see see he understood this he knew right um you know in scandinavian scholarship we tend to say that christianity was the biggest uh or yeah i would say at least traditionally, we've seen uh, scholars saying was the biggest break with tradition in Scandinavia. Christianity caused the most changes. And I would say that that is not the case. Um, uh, what really caused the most changes, and that doesn't go for, uh, that's not uh, exclusive to Nordic societies. It's 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 a, a global phenomenon, is the Industrial Revolution. That is the biggest break humanity has ever had with traditional ways of living compared to whatever else came after. And what we can see from this break with traditional ways of living is that that has been detrimental to us. It starts um, in, um, you know, it, it, it has different beginnings depending on where we are at, right? You can go, go back in, in time and trace uh, an e event here and an event there and so on and see, that had impact on how we would later come to think about ourselves in the world. Um, the, um, the the dismantlement of the enclosures in England is an important uh, historical moment for all of this. 
um, the uh, uh, the the Lord's appropriation of of all natural resources in the Prussian Empire is another important event. The invention of the modern schooling system in the Prussian Empire is another important event. Um, William the Conqueror's conquest of England and his subsequent uh, colonization of the Anglo-Saxon lands is another important event, right? And then his colonies or his descendants colonization of Ireland is another important event for all of this. And then it's sort of like all, uh, it comes together historically into this landed aristocratic elite, especially in England and France, um, that, um, has the means of production in 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 the industrial revolution at their hands and that is when pardon my uh, language shit hit the fan yeah exactly <laughs> because what it, what happens to the european populations is that they are ultimately completely it's been a long process where they they've slowly been detached more and more from um, their places of living, but with the industrial revolution, they're completely torn out of their uh, original places of living. Right? We see mass migrations to urban centers and mass migrations out of Europe to distant continents. Right? This country is a result of that. Right? And what what happens internally in Europe is a lot of violence on all levels. Right? From from a, you know individual to individual state to individual to 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 state between state right wars everywhere constantly and that also has a spillover effect on uh, on the rest of the world where we see colonization we see genocide by Europeans um across the Americas um in, the, in Africa in Australia you know the rest of the planet really right Yep. And that then ser further serves to detach the populations outside of Europe from their places of living and and their traditional narratives, their their meaning making of the world. Um, and then eventually we we then and we end up in this weird system that we live in today, where more and more and more of us are detested and we have this category for people that are presumed to not be detested that's indigenous peoples right that uh, that then are fighting to 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 hold on to their land and you know one of the things that you can see is that um you know the the highest rate of biodiversity is on indigenous hands today like the 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 um uh, areas in, in the world that are governed by indigenous um, peoples are the, the areas in the world that are best off and the rest of us are destroying whatever we have left yeah so yeah 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 well, yeah I mean this is a preaching to the choir moment because I actually in my teaching career I've had you know periodically to teach you know um sections of you know what was kind of the old western civ sort of thing essentially it was european history from the, the 18th to the 20th century and I, I you know like day one i'm telling myself okay a i'm a medievalist historian by training there's a reason for that i think the industrial revolution is the worst catastrophe that ever happened to humans in all of its history and potentially with the exception maybe of modern medicine on some level just you know in that you know life extension a little bit or a little bit better health potential you know 
I'll trade this for the Middle Ages any any day. You know, I just, I mean, I know obviously I know that's a quite a general sort of weird statement to some people, but I mean, because of what you're talking about, it's just like. I think the 19th century is just like the worst century in all of human history. I would not have wanted to be alive there, but to me as a historian, and you see this, you know, when you have the long view, it's like, that is a hard pendulum swing to, you know, it, it's like, you know, centuries upon centuries of people who ascend, you know, basically, unless you were, you know, rich are the vast majority of the people are subsistence living, right? And you're just trying to get by. And so maybe you can't on some level blame them for, you know, you get to this point where they're like, oh, and we can do this and we can do that and yay, you know, and, and, and then just push it so far without any maybe blatant disregard for some of them, but just complete ignorance, quite frankly, mm -hmm. for many of them. They don't know, right, what it is that they're getting into when they're pushing the pendulum to these extents. And, and now we're living in the time where that is becoming glaringly apparent. Right, um, yeah. In lots of ways, so. And I would say, I would say that, you know, the reason that they went in that direction back then is because they lost their elders. They lost their elders long, long before. If you go to indigenous cultures and you see the workings of their elders, you know, they will not necessarily just adopt any new technology or or, or whatever else comes to them. Um, there will be many different, you know, deliberations usually in, in, in such cultures. Um, is this good for us? Is this meaningful? Why do we need it? All of that kind of stuff right whereas you know today we just have like this slap happy idea about any new technology that that is presented to us it's like oh this is a good thing it's like why would it be a good thing um like yeah. so so uh, um, you know that that's how our societies have changed and you know this is probably i would say also why um you know so many indigenous uh peoples here in north america refer to us white people as you know the, the younger people right, right. <laughs> those who didn't grow right. up um and you know and, and i also i, I want to stress too that you know this is when i'm saying these things i'm i'm not saying oh well you know, you're you're a white american you descend from settlers and colonizers so you're a bad person or anything like that i don't i don't uh, i don't agree with that way of of, of looking at people uh, because what we need to understand that this is a process that is out of people's control as well like this, those people in the 19th century, as you just pointed out, right, like they subsistence living and actually in very poor conditions because they were constantly being exploited by the elite classes, right? They were looking for ways to actually just survive. Um, and one of the ways, look at Ireland, was to leave Ireland for uh, uh, North America, right? And you see the same thing with Scandinavians. There are, there are, you know, millions of Norwegians and Swedes in particular who are leaving. Well, why? Well, it's because farming sucks in yeah. Norway and, yeah, right. and Sweden at that time. Yeah. And you have these oppressive systems, too, yeah. with a, a landed elite. Of course, it's like in the 19th century, it's becoming less so uh, oppressive, but it's still quite oppressive. Yeah. Uh, the same is the case for Denmark, um, although it looks like we have fewer people leaving uh, Denmark for North America. I think that might also come down to um, the, 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 the Dano-German wars 
in this period that you know leave more and more land in in german hands so so migrants are counted as germans rather than danes um so it might actually be similar numbers from denmark uh, from the old danish territory at least so ultimately what we're seeing is of course that people who live in under those conditions they will look for new opportunity right then opportunity becomes an ideology and boom you have modern america yeah although (laughs) although i have to say when i'm teaching my viking class i'll say like those people were opportunistic in the extreme in my estimation as well but it's for a different reason i think well no actually no, it's not. It's a different context, but the reason is the same. They're like trying to better their conditions, whatever that means. Um, you know, so I mean, opportunism, I think, is just part of being human, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are some there with that period from the 500s up to the maybe like 1100s. What you see in Scandinavia, similar dynamics as the ones that you see in Europe broadly. Uh, in in the 19th 20, and early 20th century, um, you have power hoarding by elites in Scandinavia from the 500s and onwards. Right. This is what we then call um, the the emergence of the Scandinavian nations, whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to call them polities instead, because yeah, we, I do too. Yeah. we don't we don't have a, a coherent populations like that you know yeah. as in the same way as we do in the 19th century um when the nations are actually invented right right um you and this is what is also expressed in in the saga literature right the we have these situations i, I really like the one uh in Luxtela saga where oh, you have yeah, <laughs> you have these deliberations right where uh Chet, he uh he calls the entire family together and when i say family in this regard we have to think of a much more expansive system than those like nuclear families that were invented in the late 19th century and promoted as the norm in the 1950s um we have a much more expansive family structure and they all come together and then they deliberate and say look um that king over there in west london uh, he's he's going to try to usurp our lands. He's probably going to kill us. He's, or if he doesn't kill us, he's going to make us subject to him. And we don't want that. So what do we do? Well, we could stay and fight. Um, yeah, well, let's leave. Yeah. Let's go find better lands somewhere else. And then yeah. you have that journey um, yeah. that goes through Scotland, the Faroe Islands, Orkneys, and then eventually to Iceland, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, these are the the things that people had to consider yeah. uh, and still have to consider as soon as you have a society that goes towards dictatorship rather than pluralism, right? These are like the two extremes in that sense, right? right. Um, then, then, then you will have people who have to ask themselves, well, do I want to stay in this or do I want to go somewhere else that seems better, right? Yeah, and and that seems to have been a dynamic in 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 Scandinavia and the Viking Age. I mean, why are there so many place names in in yeah. the Dane law that <laughs> that yeah. come from Scandinavia? It's probably because England was also receiving a lot of Scandinavians that were tired of whatever was happening in Scandinavia yeah. in this period. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's it's an eternal human story, quite frankly. Um, yeah, the irony of it all is, of course, that in Scandinavia, we herald this period as like the, the period where our states became states and all of that stuff. And in Denmark, we can count our royal lineage all the way back to Harold Bluetooth. And it's like, is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like it to me. <laughs> okay, so wait, okay, so yeah, that, that that reminds me then of something that like you just said that I wanted to to circle back to, and that was the the thing about elders. Mm -hmm. Um so uh yeah, I was just um you saw I actually posted on Instagram like my great grandparents, right? Um and so I got that from my uh cousin who he's like my second cousin, and I met him like once before, but then we kind of reconnected just recently, and so we were zooming and talking about this, you know, heritage and this and that, and he was talking about having um, one of our ancestors who, who he was close to or whatever, uh, passing away recently, mm -hmm. and that um, his wife, who was also close to this person, um, had this dream that they, like, touched them. They, like, she, like, I felt this hand on my back. It was him. I, you know, I know it. I know it. I can't explain it. it sounds weird, whatever. And he's like, no, because I just had that dream literally, like, three days ago where, like, this, that I had, had touched this person's arm just to let them know I was there right before they passed. And then I, I feel this touch on my arm, whatever. And, and he's like, isn't that weird? And I said, from my understanding of it, that's a very, you know, sort of Nordic way of thinking about it in the pre-Christian period, again, that we're talking about is this idea of, you know, sort of whatever it is that you want to call it that separates the living from the dead, that it's way more porous in that mm -hmm. period of time. And that, you know, that there is, you know, ancestor worship uh, to a degree or whatever, but that those people may have passed, but they never really leave, right? Um, mm -hmm. And like my Icelandic friends, right? Like the filkia, you know, sort of the thing that inhabits you that can also be so somewhat related to the the, the previous generations and stuff. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit, just about this idea of, you know, the importance of, I mean, because you just mentioned it too, right? The family, not the nuclear family. We know that the importance in, in the Viking age of the sort of the extended kin network, um, um, but it also just speaks to sort of the wider um I don't want to say belief again but you know what I mean the wider acceptance of just the, the importance of the connection that you have uh to the people who are with you but the people who came before you mm. yeah well so what it looks like is we humans we have a community that are these uh, material physical tangible communities of humans around us in in spaces right and then it looks like we have the exact same kind of community, essentially, with uh, those who have passed, um, at least in a traditional society. Um, and, well, what does that look like in a Scandinavian context? There's a reason that the Scandinavian uh, region is littered with mounds. These mounds that have been built over people who died. And they go, they, the mound building culture uh, exists from the early Stone Age in Scandinavia all the way up until Christianity. Like this was the tradition, right? Uh, so this, what we, what it looks like is, if you ask me, is that these populations that existed from the Stone Age and up until they converted to Christianity, they have had uh, similar ideas around community with the dead um 
some of those mounds um, that were built back in the Stone Age and Bronze Age, they were communal spaces. They were spaces where multiple um, ancestors were buried or in other ways interred, right? And you could walk into them. I've actually been inside these. <laughs> it's a really funky feeling. <laughs> Not like walking into a modern mausoleum or something. It's It's got a different, you know, because the idea kind of seems similar to me, right? Yeah, well, you're going into the realm of the dead. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. what that is, right? Right. Like or like once... a catacomb in Rome or something. Yeah. yeah. Once you crawl in through that little space that can sort of like fit a person uh, when you're on your hands and knees, and then you get into the inside of this mound, then you're in the world of the dead. And what do we see in the Viking Age? Well, it looks like in the Viking Age, we get a lot more... Um, and mind you, I am not an expert on on burial practices, and I'm just ba basing this off of what I know. Um, uh, it looks like you get a lot more innovation in um, in burial practices, and but as as Neil Price also says, that even though there's innovation, there are also very uh, constantly common ideas, structures, and 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 practices in place. Right, so you get in innovation within a coherent uh framework of 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 this is how we do it mm -hmm. um and you know one of the uh, one of my favorite ones is is a grave that's built as a chamber grave that kind of looks like a house structure where you have a single woman that was interred in there um she was put in a chair and i think she was held up by by ropes so so that she would look like she was sitting mm -hmm. and uh, there's a little chest next to her, and that uh, on that chest there's a candle candle that has been burnt several times, which means somebody has been going in there and hanging out with her after yeah. her death. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and we get those chamber graves in in the Viking Age. They seem to be uh, close to um, urban centers, like uh, Hedeby and Birka are examples of them. Um, and this seems to be a very distinct sort of like Viking era practice that doesn't exist before that. And it, of course, disappears with Christianity. Um, uh, but also keep in mind that there's always an overlap period. There are some Christians that are buried with grave goods as well. Right. So the old ideas don't go away. So what what basically what all of this tells us, everything that we can see with the furnishing of these graves, the building of these graves is that there was so much care. Uh, for the dead we were so concerned with them being comfortable in the afterlife that we put all this food clothes uh weaponry um animals all kinds like peacocks even show up in some of these graves yeah. Right? Yeah. right just to make sure that they have what they need right and then it seems like the afterlife of the grave was prolonged and extended in different ways for different reasons but the primary connecting point is always communication with the dead. And so this, this you can see in the folklore as well later on that this these ideas, they stay with us in different ways. Um, the, the best example I would say is, is sort of the, the more negative um, versions of all of this. There are Norwegian folk tales about 
when you've you know when you pass grave mounds on the road at night you have to be very careful because the hulder uh, uh they will offer you uh a drink of a drinking horn and then when you say no they throw it at you and then you know it hits the horse and the horse melts because it's acid or something like that it goes like wild sort of horror stories right and that's because this is an old tradition of actually communicating with the hidden people in the mound right that we're then trying to undermine in in this 19th century era or seven, uh, 18th century era where where we want to get rid of all of that quote-unquote superstition right? right and you know that's also why you have folk tales about being invaded a, a christmas eve by by the trolls right and they come and they hold a big party in in your house and trash everything and <laughs> And again, like the old story, I'm sure, was that all your ancestors would come to you on Christmas Eve and you would have a really nice time, right? And so now we have the inverse situation because we want to keep the dead dead, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you have old old traditions too of of you know setting up a table, even making a bed for uh the tomb cut. Right, this this uh, the, the 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 farm man essentially again that's an ancestor who's supposed to come in and be part of your celebration of of, of Christmas Eve, um, so yeah, they they were always there. They are always there. They're always walking with you in this Scandinavian way of thinking, the traditional Scandinavian way of thinking, right. and again. It's only once uh, industrialization rolls around that we stop believing in that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in the okay. So this is now getting me a couple different things here, um, <clears throat> especially with relationship to your your book about Alsatru. So, so Alsatru, I'll have you explain a little bit about what that is here in a second, um, because it's you know kind of a modern interpretation, a way of bringing back some of the old ways. Um, but I'm also interested in the idea of when we talk about these old traditional uh, modes of being and what potential benefits those can have for us now or you know needing to bring them back uh, because we've lost something that you know sort of is essential to what it means to be human at least in my estimation but as a historian i also sort of like to think about the idea of this running you know when does it run a risk of like okay we we have to preserve tradition and it was you know you know too bad we got rid of the old way i don't know why i'm going like this i always talk with my hands <laughs> like that's the past this is the future right <laughs> um, but but the fact that we we look at it and um you know, I mean, people throughout time have done this sort of like, you know, rose colored glasses, the golden ages in the past kind of thing and lamenting what we've lost and why don't we do that anymore. Um, and so I, I always sort of like to think as as time and history in the human experience sort of flows like a river, at least that's how I kind of envision it in my mind, you know. It, it's always moving and it's sort of organic and like what is the this impulse to kind of stop time at a certain point and think yeah that's when it was good and that's what we should do again and so um with the idea of about so true and kind of trying to to sort of bring some of this back or or re-inhabit that space again do you think about that? Do you think about it in terms of, you know, running the risk of like, ah, the modern world just sucks. Let's just go ahead and go back to that because that was really great. Because obviously, if you look at it, you know, with a real sort of, you know, microscopic lens, 
I mean, you're going to see some, you know, like you said before, excuse the language, some shitty things that were part of that way of being as well, right? I mean, there, nothing is all good or all bad. So, um, so yeah, so also true. And then how do you avoid sort of this golden age kind of thinking about tradition? Yes. Well, let me start with this golden age way of thinking about um, the uh, past. Uh, the, so personally, the way that I avoid it um, is, and I, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but um, I think nostalgia and sentimentalism are pathetic sentiments. <laughs> Honestly, that's my personal opinion. <laughs> Others may have a different idea about it. Um, and why do I do that? Well, that's because I, I know it's it's just a mirage. And this this you know hankering for an, an a past era, um, longing for 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 something that that once was that I want to bring back. Well, one you can never do that. You can never bring the past back. Not even the nineteen fifties can come back in in a, in today. That's that's not how it is. Um. Uh, so so what you're always going to be doing is is you're going to be uh, reenacting or recreating a period in the present, right? And that means that you're you're doing that on the premise of the present, which means it's never going to be that. Like it's a philosophically impossible to do, right? right. <laughs> um, uh, or it's an improbability. Um, so, um, so so that means first of all that we should always, you know, um in my opinion, comport ourselves as if we're living in the present. Now, um, but when it then comes to building a way of thinking uh, today in the present around um, cultural material that existed in the past, well, what we need to do is we need to find the connecting point, right? We are reestablishing retying a thread to the past because the past has good things mm -hmm. and we're looking at those good things and then we are trying to manifest them in our present essentially right that's how i look at it mm -hmm. um is the um, um is the uh, the viking age for instance or uh, that period between the Viking Age and the uh, um, the 13th, uh, 14th century, when when all of this stuff is written down in Iceland and um, the stories about the Viking Age and all that, is that the preferred era? No, 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 not for me. But that's what I got. <laughs> that's that's what I that's what I have uh, to 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 work with. I, I think um, things looked a lot better uh, for many different reasons before the Viking Age um, in Scandinavia. And, um, and, and different societies at different points have, have that sort of like an era where, where, where things seem to be. And here's the thing. We shouldn't think about this in terms of like golden ages or... Um, uh, uh, or 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 everything is perfect or anything like that. Uh, we should think about this in terms of what leaves the best opportunities for for humans to exist the way that they want to. 
right? That's how I, I look at it, right? And what can we see historically with the, with the Scandinavian societies? Well, we know that Scandinavian societies had uh, what we would call a type of like, I, I, I loathe the term, but uh, but tribal structures um, in um, a, sort of like up until the Viking era. In the Viking era, that's when we get more uh, something that closer resembles the European idea of state structures. Yeah, right. social stratification in that kind of, yeah, hierarchical yeah. way, even though technically it isn't feudalism, but yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 sort of it as I said before, it starts in the 500s, but it's a long, long, long process of development. And if you look historically at different societies, um, you can see many different developments. Uh, go to the south of the American border and look at this, the the types of societies that existed uh, pre-Spanish conquest and also during the Spanish conquest, which did take a while. Um, uh, you find everything from, you know, uh, stratified hierarchical societies like the Aztecs to what looks like republics. Um, I think it's Claxcala uh, that, that that was a, a type of republic, for instance, and go to the uh, Mayan cities on the Yucatan. And what do you see there? You see uh, pluralistic type societies where, uh, for instance, women have a very dominant role. Um, you, you can even sort of like trace I mean, it's fascinating to actually look at the, the history of Yucatan, um, because what you have is, I mean, that the colonization doesn't even seem to succeed until very recently, if it even has, like, <laughs> you know, uh, with with a lot of the com indigenous communities there. Um, and uh, my 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 point with all of this is that um, well, we as human beings we come from these different cultural contexts around the world. I come from a Scandinavian cultural context, and what interests me is um, uh, ways of living for us humans uh, that actually serve our purpose of being human. And what I can see is that the post-industrial society does not serve our purpose of being human. Uh, what we at best get are institutions and technologies and structures that exploit our humanity in different ways. Just look at social media. It's social media. And it's media that's exploiting our, our propensity to have social connections, mm -hmm, right. uh, our, our interest in and willingness to communicate with other people, right? Um, and, and they're exploiting that for ad space right. to sell us stuff, right? Um, and and th that's problematic. So for me, the interest is to then find moments in time in the, in the cultural context that I'm familiar with um uh th that were better than that and then see well what can we actually extract from that that we can bring into um the present and the future um and added to all of this is of course also the cultural context for this for me is that i have been raised with um it wasn't called also true back then but uh, it came to be called also true right this this is part of me in my growing up um, through the 80s and 90s and then eventually also true becomes a word 
um, it's actually kind of funny because the, the word Ausertrum was what Danish scholars would, would call the pre-Christian religions of Scandinavia in the 19th century. Then it's inherited into Icelandic and then becomes a term for, you know, the revival of the pre-Christian religion that is now being used everywhere um, and re-enters Danish vocabulary that way as well as, as Asetol. So <laughs> um, the I think it's an incredibly problematic term because it's uh, entirely defined within this context of, of belief. Um, this is what you would also see if you, you know, Google it in here in North America, you will see somebody explaining it as the belief in the Aesir, right? And that belief, credo, as we know it from Latin, is an entirely Christian invention. And having belief is something that belongs to the Christian religion. And that's not what it's about in, in you know, traditional knowledge systems, traditional uh, systems of relating to the world it's it's exactly that it's relating to the world it's establishing relations in different ways as we just talked about establishing relations with ancestors establishing relations with natural entities understanding your per, uh, personal uh, place mm -hmm. in context of all of these relations and when you start digging into old norse mythology you'll see so many interesting references to bonds of all kinds of thing, bonds and threads that go in the world. Uh, and when Ragnarok comes, when chaos comes, that's when the bonds break. Do, there are direct references to that. Even the gods are called bonds. <laughs> yeah. And that <laughs> to, is um, what, uh, sorry to interrupt, but just a, um, a phrase that you use a lot in your, well, in, in here, but it's in the sacred flame and everything, which I really like, but it begs sort of describing a little bit, uh, is Nordic story world. So this is what you're talking about, right? When, when we mm -hmm. go back and look at the Nordic story world, this is what what, what we find. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I use the term Nordic story world because mythology is problematic. <laughs> like when I say myth uh, uh, nowadays, I think the average person will, will think, oh, this is a story that's not true. Uh, in a uh, in the context of of, of uh, scholarship on religion, the term myth is 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 has much more import. Um, it, first of all, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It usually means um, like, when you talk about a myth, it it means a actually incredibly important narrative, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but has the implication that that the entities that are mentioned, the figures of the story, are not real, right? Um, that's why it's still used in scholarship. Obviously, that's that's not how it would be perceived by the people who are telling this story in a meaningful context in their society. Yeah. They did not sit there and and go like yeah let me tell you the story about thor fishing for the midgard serpent and by the way we all know thor didn't exist of course like no like that's not how that worked right <laughs> uh so 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 the term myth for the average person means lie essentially right. uh but lie but a great story perhaps right. and the term myth for scholars means uh important stories that are essential to what we study but we don't believe in them <laughs> right 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 um, and and then we have also with that in in the scholarship of religion, scholarship of literature, and and so on. We have this um, tendency to separate everything into genres, yeah. right? 
which is also incredibly problematic and in, again an invention of the 19th century more than anything else um and this is why we have saga literature and we have edic poetry and we have Snyder Sturdison's Edda and we should keep all of these different genres separate right even though they are about the same material <laughs> right you, uh, the best example is uh, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer right he shows up in poetry <laughs> he shows up in skaldic references he shows up in edic poetry he shows up in Sturdison's Edda in short form and then he also has a whole sa saga right <laughs> yeah yeah um so 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 ultimately what I like to do is call this the Nordic story world because this is a universe of narration there's a universe that where where everything makes sense once you exist in it essentially right and and it doesn't matter if if the the story about Sigurd the dragon slayer is narrated in poetic form over here or or a, you know a an extended prose narrative an epic form over here um because it all comes together as meaningful uh, knowledge about our world right that's that's the point of his story as this hero um and the the story about his uh, his ancestors uh, the versongs and so on right like it, all of that is has import for us as we we exist right here right now right that's the point of the retelling of the story um and then of course we have to dig into what that means for you know the version that that has uh, survived um in in like the Völsunga saga for instance what will is written in the early 1400s the, the only surviving text right and well what does that mean what what kind of importance did it have when it was written down and all that stuff and what meaning can it have to us today and that's where I love you know extracting knowledge I would say from all of this because I think there's a lot to say about yeah. all of this and if nothing else if nothing else, if we if we want to say that these texts are detached from us today because we are living in an entirely different society and all that stuff is like, yeah, sure. But then we have a period of at least 100, 200 roughly years of people bringing them back and recontextualizing them like Wagner did right like the norwegian historians have done with the the king sagas like icelandic historians have done with the icelandic family sagas like danish historians have done with legendary sagas like tolkien has done with like taking all of this stuff and then reconfigurating it into his his own little universe of the lord of the rings which he wanted to be a mythology for uh, the, uh, the English, the Anglophone uh, world, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it's. I mean, uh, even even if we we want to sort of like put that distance between us now and that material, in for instance, in a scholarly sense, we can't ignore the fact that this material has has circulated in our populations in a very meaningful way for the last two hundred years. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> or even some of the older stuff we were just talking about, right? With even Aurelius or others, you know. Mm -hmm. Throughout time, I mean, it's it's part of expressing, documenting, whatever word you want to use, but ex you know the, the human experience. Um, and there is, I mean, and this is a like a, I don't know, it's not, I guess, a debate maybe is the right word. Uh, you know, in the historian community about 
about context, you know, because I'm always on and people who've listened to this podcast know before, to, you know, like I'm on about historical context does matter. I mean, we don't live a thousand years ago, but then there's, you know, so there's the recognition of that. But then on the other side of it, it's like, yeah, but we're all still human beings. And at, at the core somewhere, there's there's got to be an understanding of, you know, experience of what it means to be a human being in the world um, that we can latch onto, right? And and still relate to uh, in some ways. So, I mean, I, I think your book is great. I mean, I highly recommend it to people. I mean, you can read it in an afternoon and um, I, I hope you don't, don't take this wrong, but I mean, there's this whole series of like, you know, fill in the blank subject for dummies, right? So, and mm. you've got also true for beginners, right? But I mean, it is kind of like that too, because it's really, it's it's a very good basic description of what this is, where it comes from, and then how these things can still be relatable and applied in our modern context. But also, I think importantly, and this is a good thing about uh, your Sacred Flame podcast as well, it's like why it's important to be mm. to do this. Because, um, well, actually, to quote you to you, <laughs> said, the 21st century is certainly a period of revival of ancient spiritualities across the world. Um, and yeah, right? I mean, there's there's got to be a reason for that. You know, there. I think if you're alive and particularly in the Western world. But of course, if you're in the Western world, what we do has a ripple effect for everybody else practically. You know, it's kind of like, th there is a feeling, at least for me, um, of a, an emptiness or a something that, um, you know, is as a whole that is needing to be filled. Um, and I think the, the forgetting of the past, um, you know, full scale, like we think, we need to do on some level. And I think this is also talking about the postmodern or the post-industrial. I mean, the, the enlightenment and what created that whole period of time and this idea about progress and everything for progress and everything for the future. And like you say, you know, new technology always by default, good, you know, like we're marching forward into this golden age rather than looking back at a golden age, because that's a dumb thing to do. And it's kind of like, you know, that's just so baby with the bathwater kind of thinking in my mind, you know, it, it's like, there's usefulness in all of it, you just have to sort of figure out where that is, and, and begin to apply it, and so, um, I don't know, I mean, I can, yeah, no, if I can attach a comment to that, I would say that it's actually incredibly important to remember the past, and we are seeing very real examples of this right now, um, in the tech industry, um you know for instance uh, self-driving cars uh what problem do we have with self-driving cars well we have the fact that you know this this technology isn't perfect um we don't know if it's ever going to be perfect and there's you know there are so many variables involved in in a in 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 a car driving down the road right yeah. uh that it it can be difficult to anticipate how to construct that ai and all of that stuff right and so what do we have well there was like one i don't remember who it was but some prominent ceo of some tech company who um, um said something on on i think it was on social media maybe it was an article um well well the solution to this would be to put them on some kind of rail tracks it's like great so you reinvented the train right this is an example of 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 loss of historical knowledge. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. um, the the what was it? Elon Musk. That was like, oh yeah, let's say uh, let's let's create uh, some kind of like 
what? Called the Boring Company. Let's put tracks and like you know go underground. It's like yeah, that's called the Metro in Paris. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I think also Elon Musk had a solution for uh, carbon monoxide in the atmosphere. Uh, basically saying that well, we just need some kind of like uh, system to to take it out of the atmosphere. And it's like, oh, so you're reinventing trees? Great. Yeah. Why just don't uh, plant some trees, guys? <laughs> so, so it, it, this is this is what happens. And I'm I'm not calling these people who say this kind of stuff stupid or anything like that. This is what happens when you are too insular in your in your thinking and you don't. Uh, first of all, have permeable boundaries to the rest of the community around you and also to the past, to your ancestors who rode trains. Right. Because right? <laughs> <laughs> if you had that, then then you would you would already know that, that uh, this is a great solution to have trains rather than cars. <laughs> but you would miss the opportunity to think, man, I'm so smart. I'm inventing. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yes, exactly, and that's that's I guess the, the 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 problem of the modern ideology of the individual, right? The individualism. Luckily for us, we get to keep reinventing the wheel. We're great at it. Right. Well, okay, so I mean, I want to be respectful of your time. We've gone on for like an hour and a half here, but I mean, I have just like one kind of final sort of thought experiment, and I I know we've kind of gotten at bits and pieces of it all over the place, but if you could sort of you know encapsulate it down into a, a, a few sentences like if a nordic person from the year 800 got into a time machine and then landed in you know denver or boulder or portland or new york or whatever and spend a little bit of time what do you think they would notice about how the way we inhabit the world um i think that they would look at at um our ways of life and and the things that we do and and then they would shake their heads and they would say, uh, man, you guys are lonely. You live like sad lives because, um, it, and this is, this is also the reason that I say that is because that is exactly the reaction that we've gotten from like over the last 100 years or so from indigenous peoples. Uh, coming to Western countries, um, what was it? There was a uh, um, someone from from a um, indigenous population in the Amazons, a, a leader of some kind. It's it's a vague memory who who came came to London, and saw how people lived there, and was like, uh, uh, "How can I help these helpless uh, these homeless people? How, what, what can we do?" Like, like they this person was was like obviously very strongly emotionally affected about the by the way that people live there right looking at this saying this is not right right uh having very little experience with urbanized societies of this kind uh, prior to them coming to to london and this is uh so so i i would assume that that uh, uh, people living in the 800s in scandinavia would have similar experiences because they they lived in similar ways yeah. as as many indigenous populations still do today and or are trying to to keep up doing yeah. right because yeah. keep in mind that our our types of societies the ones that we live in now they're encroaching upon them and and undermining their 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 ways of life right so so yeah i i think um 
I think the, uh, the a, a a ninth century Scandinavian coming to Western what's it doesn't even have to be here in in the U.S. It, it could also be in Scandinavia. Yeah, they would get depressed yeah. <laughs> essentially and say, "You guys need to do better," or "How can I help you?" <laughs> or they'd say, "Where's that time machine? I want to go back to <laughs> exactly <the> ninth century." Oh <laughs> well, I hate to end it on such a sad note, but I guess we got work to do. And um, I mean, thank you so much for for what you do. I mean, I've really enjoyed my conversations with you and reading um, your writings, and also listening to your podcast. And I do think that. I mean, the first thing, you know, in order to try to fix a problem is awareness of the problem. And I mean, I think you're definitely, um, you know, helping people to do that and also, you know, postulating some of these ways that we can learn from the past in order to help make a better future. Thank you. Yeah, no, I I, I just, you know, hope to give, uh, give people, especially with the, uh, the Sacred Flame podcast, some tools, essentially, that that's that's what it's about, giving people tools in their minds to... Uh, you know, navigate their world. Good. Yeah. Okay. And I'll put I'll put links to all of it in the uh, the 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 notes for the podcast, and so people can check it out. And um, yeah. So awesome. Anyway, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. So um, yeah. Until next time, I guess it would be great to continue the conversation at some point. I think I would be happy to. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. You too.